Hey friends, welcome to the Love Intently podcast, where each week I bring you relationship experts, inspiring couples, and first-class relationship thought leaders from around the world. I'm on a mission to explore what exactly makes love last and to empower a generation to have strong relationships. I'm your host, Sophie Kwok, the chief love enthusiast who believes that relationships are the most important part of our lives. And if you're looking to build a stronger relationship or to take a proactive approach towards love, loveintently.com hosts an array of articles, podcasts, resources, and love tips to help you build and keep strong relationships. I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. My conversation with Dr. Lisa Neff is split into two parts. On part one, this episode, we talk about why it's important to study relationships, what things we can do day by day to build up positivity in our relationships, how positive assurances tend to evolve over time in a marriage, positivity, and the impact it plays on a relationship's success, the attachment theory, and what research studies have impacted Dr. Lisa Neff and how she approaches relationships. Welcome to the Love Intently podcast, Dr. Lisa Neff. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's been such an incredible journey of being able to get to know you and find you and have you be a part of the Love Intently team and one of our cherished advisors. So thank you for I all was that you do. Honored that you approach me. <laughs> Okay, so I am particularly excited to talk with you because you've done so many interesting pieces of research. And what I really appreciate about the work that you've done is that a lot of it isn't just focused on the negative, whereas what I've found from a lot of the research in the past is, you know, what are people doing once they get into conflict and they're falling apart? But you've actually focused on the opposite side of it. Um, and so before we get started, I want you to ask you um, a little bit about your background for audience to get to know you and what got you into this work? Um, I've always been fascinated by the topic of psychology and understanding human behavior. And honestly, it's a pretty simple story. I was an undergraduate and uh, one of my professors did a lot of work understanding dating and sort of uh, how uh, couples approach those early stages of the relationship. And I was really fascinated doing that work. And I just kept uh, getting involved with that, decided to go to grad school, found advisors who were moved on from dating to marriage and started studying the early years of marriage and understanding those factors that help promote uh, a happy, healthy, more well-adjusted transition into, into the married state. Mm. Okay. So where did you go to undergrad and graduate school? Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at University of Dayton in Ohio, and then I got a master's in general experimental psychology at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And then I got a PhD in social psychology at the University of Florida. Okay, so there's so much with the research that you're doing, but can you give us a little bit of a background on why relationships? Why is it important? Why do we need to look into this area of our life? Absolutely. 
by our nature, we are social beings. You know, humans are meant to interact with others. And actually, there's research showing that the human brain is actually wired to expect close, dependable, reliable connections to other people. And when those connections are disrupted, it can uh, create a lot of mental and physical problems for people, actually. I think one thing that often surprises people are the incredible links between the quality of our close relationships and our physical health. So just to give you a couple of examples, because I'd like to give some concrete examples, there was a study that came out a few years ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and it was conducted by medical researchers, and they were looking at the effectiveness of chemotherapy treatments for cancer. But a really interesting finding emerged from that study, because what they found was that married individuals were more likely to survive a cancer diagnosis than single individuals were. Mm. And more importantly, the benefits of uh, being married, so your marital status, had a bigger effect on survival rates than did the chemotherapy treatment. And so it, it was just a very powerful and surprising lesson about the role that relationships may be playing in physical health. Other researchers have conducted some interesting work where they've brought couples into a hospital setting And they've actually, believe it or not, physically wounded them. So they take this device. It's about the size of an iPhone. And they uh, create a series of blisters on your forearm. And they're watching and monitoring those blisters for how well they heal over the next several days. But what they did was... In addition to wounding participants, they had them engage in some interactions with one another where they talked about difficulties the couple was dealing with, so problems or conflicts that they may need to work through. And they coded those discussions that couples had for the quality of those discussions. How constructive and uh, positive were they versus more hostile and destructive? And what they found was that the wounds of the couple's who had more positive discussions or had more positivity when discussing those conflicts, their wounds healed uh, 40% faster compared to the people who had more hostile or destructive approaches to discussing those conflict interactions. So there seems to be links between our relationships and our immune system. And so then not surprisingly, some of the most powerful uh, evidence we like to talk about is some researchers actually conducted a study of the factors that predict mortality risk. Mm. So they conducted what's known as a meta-analysis. So meta-analysis just means you aggregate the findings of a large number of studies to sort of take the average effect so we can under you know understand what's really going on because sometimes a finding might only emerge in one particular study. So we like to do these meta-analyses to aggregate findings across many different studies conducted by different scientific laboratories. And they were basically looking at the effects of well-known risk factors for mortality. And what they found was that the quality of our close relationships was the strongest predictor of mortality, even above and beyond things such as smoking, obesity, physical activity, those other things that we know to be very strong predictors of physical health, close relationships was actually a stronger predictor than those. And so um, our relationships are, are truly vital to our health and happiness. 
Right. Absolutely. And I, I think I know exactly what article you're talking about. That I think that one was done by Harvard and there was a really famous TED talk that actually inspired me to do the work that I'm doing today with Love Intently really early on. Cause I remember watching that and just being baffled. And it explains the epidemic that we're kind of experiencing right now with depression and also the, I think the opioid addiction that's rampant right now is because in, in America, we have formulated the American dream centered around our achievements, and we've allowed our relationships to kind of go to the wayside. And so this is literally the science behind how it affects us when we don't focus on Nurture it. those relationships. Exactly. So share a little bit with us on the work that you've done that helps us identify what does work, what helps people build stronger relationships, what are those things that we can do day to day to build up Mm -hmm. kind of the positive bank in our relationships? So that's a big question. Obviously, there's so many answers to that question. But one thing my graduate student, Courtney Walsh, and I have been working on recently is um, there is a psychologist known as John Gottman who proposed a theory uh, many years ago, a theory of emotional capital. And what he argued was that everyday positive moments, things that can seem trivial at the moment, just like sharing a small laugh with your partner over dinner, engaging in a leisure activity, those those small things that happen on a day-to-day basis, that those positive moments actually matter in some pretty important ways. And his theory of emotional capital said that essentially every time you share one of those small positive moments with your partner, it's deposited into a metaphorical bank account for the Mm -hmm. relationship. So it's like accumulating wealth for the relationship. And the idea is the more emotional capital, which is the, the emotional wealth that you're accumulating, that a couple accrues in the relationship, the more resilient they should be to those inevitable challenges and difficulties that every couple faces at some point. So the idea is you can think about it, you know, if we're thinking about it as a bank account, a metaphor you can use is imagine you have two individuals. One is a millionaire and another is maybe a poor struggling grad student with $100 in their bank account. Now imagine both of them get a $50 parking ticket. Clearly that parking ticket is going to be much more detrimental to the graduate student who only has $100 compared to the millionaire. The idea is the same when it comes to our relationships, that if we have accumulated more positive emotional moments in our relationship, when those conflicts arise, when those inevitable negative moments arise, it should be less detrimental for our relationship. And so we've done some research looking at that. So we do, it's called daily diary research. So we have couples complete a questionnaire every night before bed that takes them about 10 minutes to complete. And it asks them about the events of their day. And in this particular study, couples did this for a total of 42 nights. So we had a lot of these uh, daily snapshots of what's happening in the relationship. And so we were able to look at how much emotional capital were these couples accruing over those 42 days. And then we were able to look at their responses to conflicts and negativity when those negative events did happen. And we found that couples who had accumulated more emotional capital in their relationship, they were less reactive to conflicts when they arise. And what that means is basically on a day when something bad happened, those individuals 
maintain their happiness in the relationship to a higher degree compared to people who had less of that uh, emotional capital built up. So it's just a way of sort of promoting resilience in the relationship. It helps you weather those less than perfect moments in the relationship a little bit better. Mm. Can you give our audience an example of what some of those positive moments might be like or what some of your participants shared with you? Um, it, it was a checklist they completed. And so like I mentioned, we were just interested in very mundane, everyday positive moments. So things like your partner showed an interest in, in the events of your day or your partner and you engage in a leisure activity together. So um, just those very simple everyday moments that, that couples can engage in. So could you share with our audience how these positive assurances tend to evolve over time within a relationship? Sure. Yeah, I have another student who I'm working with, uh, Kristen Farnish, and she's been very interested in understanding what is changing in those early newlywed years, right? We all know that when you start a marriage, it's happy and blissful, right? Mm -hmm. There's rainbows and unicorns and everyone's so in love, but it doesn't always stay that way. And so we've been very interested in understanding what exactly is changing in the newlywed years. How is the relationship developing? And she was looking at these everyday daily diaries that we have couples complete. And what she found was rather interesting because we were able to track the couple's reports of their everyday positive behaviors and their everyday negative behaviors over the first four years of their marriage. We you know, would contact them at different points in those four years and collect a lot of this daily diary data. And what we found was that over time, the amount of negativity that couples were exchanging with each other did not change. It didn't increase or decrease. It pretty much stayed stable. However, the amount of positivity that couples exchanged with one another was significantly declining as the relationship continued. And so this is interesting because a lot of people think, you know, what happens when relationships start to crumble? You know, it's all about the increases in negativity. And what we were looking, finding was that it's not that negativity is growing stronger. It's that positivity is diminishing. Mm -hmm. And we speculate, we're still, we're going to do some more research into this, but we speculate that because you're losing that positive cushion, you're using that emotional capital bank account, that even though negativity might not be getting worse, it might become more salient to you, right? It might take on a bigger impact in your relationship just because you're losing that that positive cushion by not sharing as many of those positive moments together as time goes on. Mm, wow. That is so powerful. And I remember hearing that for the first time and knowing that it resonated because I, I, John Gottman also did this research on the five to one theory where for every negative interaction we have, we must have five positive ones to kind of bring us back to neutral or that's what healthy couples exude. And even in our own minds, it's like you can get one negative comment mm -hmm. on social media and that's the one that you remember even if you got a hundred positive ones before. Exactly. It's a phenomenon in psychologists called bad bad is stronger than good, that the, those bad events stick with us more than the good events. So it takes more good events to counteract one bad event. Why is that? Or is there anything that we can do to counter that? It's just sort of basic human nature. You know, probably evolutionarily speaking, it's it makes sense for us to pay attention to negative events for our survival. And so mm. we're very attuned to them. They tend to affect us, you know, to a greater degree. So just, you know, trying to Make sure you're making time for positivity. 
Okay, y'all. I have something super exciting to share with you. How many of you guys enjoy a glass of wine or two during date night or girls' night? Well, let me introduce to you Wink, who makes it super easy to discover great wine from the comfort of your home, and that's W-I-N-C. Wink's wine expert selects wines matched to your taste, personalized for you, and ships it straight to your door. And it just starts at $13 a bottle. Did I mention there's no shipping cost? If you don't like a bottle they send you, they will replace the bottle with something that you love, no questions asked. And there's nothing quite like coming home to a bottle of wine that's selected just for you. All you have to do is fill out Wink's palette profile quiz answer some simple questions that your average store clerk wouldn't ask or even translate into a recommendation. These questions include things like, how do you like coffee? Or how do you feel about blueberries? Then Wink sends wines curated to your taste. And the more wines that you rate, the more personalized your monthly selections become. Each month, there are new wines, like their insanely popular Summer Water Rosé, there's no membership fees. You can skip any month, cancel any time. Shipping is covered, and you can discover great wine today. All you have to do is go to wink.com, which is W-I-N-C.com, and we're giving you $22 off of your first shipment using a code LOVEINTENTLY, one word, and that's L-O-V-E-I-N-T-E-N-T-L-Y. Again, that's wink.com with a promo code of LOVEINTENTLY, for $22 off. And did I mention that's almost two bottles on the house? So really, you got nothing to lose. Try out some great wine. Tell us how it is. Now, what about personality typing? Because I know there's a lot of talk out there about certain people um, mm-hmm. that match with others better. But realistically, in all the couples I've talked to, I have seen a variety of people on all spectrums be able to have really healthy relationships and also really unhealthy relationships. So from the studies that you've heard of and found, was there any correlation from what you've seen? So personality can play a role in shaping relationship processes, relationship outcomes. And there are a couple of personality traits I think have the strongest research behind them. So there's been a lot of research on the big five personality traits. So in the area of personality, a lot of researchers talk about the big five traits that people can be categorized Mm -hmm. on. And basically, it spells ocean. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, also known as emotional stability. And in general, if you look across all the studies looking at these personality traits and relationships, you find that one of those traits really stands out above the others as being important, and that is neuroticism. So neuroticism refers to the extent, you know, things like, do you tend to worry a lot? Are you very anxious? You know, how stable are your emotions? Do they go up and down quite a bit? And it turns out that individuals who are higher in neuroticism tend to overinterpret their partner's negative behavior, for instance. So instead of giving their partner maybe the benefit of the doubt for some small transgression they may have engaged in in the relationship, forgetting to bring home the milk when asked or things like that, people who are higher in neuroticism tend to blame their partners more, see it as a shortcoming in their partner. They tend to take their partner's ambiguous comments as sign of 
rejection in a way that people who are not high in neuroticism don't. So it can lead to more problems within the relationship. Mm. Another personality or individual difference trait that has been shown to matter in in a similar way is low self-esteem. So individuals who are low in self-esteem tend to be very fearful about uh, rejection in the relationship. They really crave their partner's acceptance. But much like individuals who are higher in neuroticism, they tend to see rejection where there actually isn't rejection in the relationship. So some interesting findings that have come out is that low self-esteem people actually underestimate their partner's feelings for them. So when you interview both people in the couple, the low self-esteem individual thinks that their partner respects them and likes them less than the partner actually does. And that can lead to some problems. It's almost they become vigilant for signs of rejection in the relationship. And you can imagine if you're always looking for signs of rejection, you're going to be more likely to see things, to overinterpret ambiguous behaviors, and therefore can end up creating problems. And what's interesting is low self-esteem people, work by a wonderful colleague of mine, Sandra Murray, has shown that low self-esteem people, when they see rejection or think they see rejection, they go into self-protection mode. So they tend to respond by pushing the partner away. They they want to protect. Whereas high self-esteem people, if they do see a rejection, they respond by going toward the partner, trying to repair the relationship. So it's just a very different response to those signs of trouble. So low self-esteem people tend to push people away and, and engage in that very strong self-protection, which can ultimately also make the partner less happy in the relationship. So it can become a dysfunctional dynamic. Does that have any correlation with the attachment theory? It is a different idea. So a, attachment theory is a, it's a pretty big theory that talks about how the way we approach our relationships as adults may start to be formulated by the relationship we had with our primary caregiver in infancy and childhood. And so the idea is if our primary caregiver was very dependable, very nurturing, if we felt like they were there when we needed them, we can develop a secure attachment. And that is going to inform the way we approach relationships in our adult life. So As we uh, enter adulthood, if we have a secure attachment, we are more likely to expect other people to be responsive to us and our needs. We expect healthy relationships. Um, However, individuals who have caregivers, there are two types of insecure attachments. One is thought to result if you have a caregiver that is maybe distant or is undependable, unreliable. And that is known as avoidant attachment. So these infants tend to learn that they can't count on the primary caregiver. They have to be more self-reliant. And so if you have an avoidant attachment, as you enter adulthood, these individuals tend to approach relationships in a different way. So for instance, they're less likely to ask for support from their partner when needed and also less likely to provide support when needed, right? Because they're, they tend to be more independent. They're less comfortable with closeness in the relationship. Mm. The other kind of insecure attachment is known as anxious attachment. And that's thought if your primary caregiver was more inconsistent. So sometimes they were there, sometimes they were not. It leads to this anxious attachment where you you really want responsiveness from that person, but you're also very afraid of rejection. 
And so anxious attachment uh, behave in some similar ways to low self-esteem, but sort of from a different perspective, a different origin. But anxiously attached individuals also can have a tendency to make mountains out of molehills, so to speak. So if a partner engages in an ambiguous behavior, so they come home from a long day and are a bit quiet, a securely attached person might just think they had a hard day. I should let them unwind. An anxiously attached person might think, have I done something wrong? Is my partner pulling away? Are they, you know, thinking about, you know, not wanting to be in this relationship? And so there, there can be that tendency to overinterpret, uh, ambiguous behaviors and, and see things perhaps in a more negative light. Mm. Incredible, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing that. Is there any particular research that has made an impact on you the most in all the work that you've done? Uh, well, one area that was sort of where I got started in the field was trying to understand a debate that was happening both in the popular media and in the scientific research. And the question was, basically, what is the healthiest way to view your partner and the relationship? So on the one hand, maybe you've seen articles in the popular media saying that you should view your partner through rose-colored glasses, right? You should, everything they do, put a positive spin on them. It's been known in the literature as having positive biases in the way you view your partner. It's almost like they can, you know, do no wrong. Mm. And the idea is it should be uh, very adaptive to view your partner with these positive biases, that the more you put a positive spin on the relationship, the perhaps more resilient that relationship will be when troubles and difficulties do arise. It makes you feel good about the relationship, right? Uh, you know, especially I study newlyweds and no one wants to, you know, wake up the day after their wedding and think, gosh, that was a mistake, right? You want to believe that you have the best person in the world and this is the greatest relationship. But on the other hand, you could argue that maybe having positive biases about your relationship isn't going to be healthy, that maybe what's going to be healthier is having a more accurate view of your relationship, warts and all, even if that means seeing those negative things that you you don't want to put a positive spin. You really want to see it for what it is. And you can imagine there might be some benefits to that. You know, perhaps if you and your partner have more accurate views of each other, everyone understands what to expect from each other. No one feels like they have to live up to high expectations that they can't quite attain. There might be more mutual understanding of what each is you know, capable of. And so there's been this debate going on. And there was for a long time in the literature, there was a debate about some people said, no, what, what is the hallmark of a healthy relationship is having these positive biases. Other people said, nope, the hallmark of a healthy relationship is not having those biases, but being accurate. Mm. And so some of the research I've been interested in understanding is, well, when is it healthy to have that positive rose-colored view of your partner? And when should you not have that rose-colored view? And what I found was that it depends on the type of perception we're talking about. So imagine your partner, you can think about all the different traits your partner has. Your partner is kind and caring, but maybe you also, you know, think about your partner's cooking abilities and their uh, punctuality. A trait like kind or caring is very broad, right? It's very abstract versus a trait like punctuality, very specific. So there's only one way you can be punctual, and that is to do things on time. A trait like kind, there's innumerable different ways to be kind, innumerable different behaviors you can engage in that represent what it means to be kind. And so what we found was that 
in the healthiest relationships, couples tended to view their partner through rose-colored glasses with this positive spin on more broad global traits. So when evaluating their partners, so what we did was we compared my view of my partner to my partner's self-view. And they found that on those broad global traits that newlyweds were viewing their partner more positively than the partner viewed the self. But when it came to those more specific qualities, like how good a cook are you? How punctual are you? On those traits, people tended to be more accurate in evaluating their partner's qualities. In other words, my view of my partner agreed with my partner's self-view. It matched up Mm. better. But we found that there was some variability in the extent to which couples did this. And if couples viewed their partner with what we called global adoration and specific understanding, it had benefits for the relationship. So if you viewed your partner with this global adoration and specific understanding, couples were better at providing support to one another when their partner needed support to attain their important goals. Couples reported feeling more efficacious in their ability to overcome challenges and conflicts in the relationship. And perhaps most importantly, the couple was less likely to divorce over those early years of marriage. So it seems that true love is loving your partner not in spite of, but because of their less than perfect qualities. So you want to have an accurate understanding of your partner's specific strengths and weaknesses, but couch that in a broader, more rose-colored view of the individual. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's it's almost like the concept of being able to accept them fully for who and where they are and and all the little things that maybe you differ, but also believing the best in them. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think another thing that Gottman said was like, it's like 70% of all conflicts never fully resolve in a relationship and that the goal isn't to fully align on every single thing that it's just not going to happen. There are going to be things that you disagree on throughout your relationship, but it's learning how to collaborate and work. Correct. Yeah. That, that is a mistake that so many couples make is they're always asking me, you know, is it, is conflict harmful for a relationship? And I'm like, no, conflict is, inevitable. Like every couple has conflict. What matters is not, does your relationship have conflict, but rather how do you handle the conflict? That is what is important. Um, Because as you mentioned, most conflicts are not going to be resolved. They're going to be managed in some way. And so it's how do you go about managing those conflicts? Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review so that others can join the conversation as well. Part two of my conversation with Dr. Lisa Neff, we talk about how to best handle conflict and how stress can impact how conflict is handled within a relationship, the research behind how to better manage stress, research topics that have personally surprised Dr. Lisa Neff, and this part is super fascinating, and also the best relationship advice that she has ever received or could give and so much more. I absolutely adore this conversation, so be sure to check out part two. Join our incredible community of 44,000 others on Instagram and let us know what you think at love.intently. Lastly, if you want to support what we're doing and to be a part of building a world that loves intently, you can do so with any dollar amount at our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash loveintently. Yes, even as little as $2 a month would be so helpful. 
Until next time, with love and intention.